Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Arman Gupta. Arman, aka Kahani Music, is the founder of Non-Resident, an alternative record label for diaspora artists. Arman started his career with a decade plus in the VC tech industry, where he's had numerous roles building and growing digital products, including at companies like MapFit, which was acquired by Foursquare. In the last two years, he shifted his focus full-time to producing his own music as Kahani and growing the aforementioned label Non-Resident. Through the label, he's worked with artists like Ramveer, Naman, and Amrita Shakti to throw multiple concerts in NYC and to release some bangers. <laughs> Here, I, I like that description. What's good? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, man. I am super excited because this is my first Brown People We Know episode in person. And I'm so glad that I have a music person on. Hey, let's go. I don't know. if you, <laughs> Am I the first music person? You're not. The, I had on Kunal, actually. Callie. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he's in New York. Well, he's not in New York right now, I think. I think he moved, no, he to, moved LA. to LA. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. But the nice thing about music people is they're used to like speaking into a mic. And for, <laughs> for people yeah. that recognize these, these are like the podcast industry standard. Yeah. But yeah, you yeah. can't really, you can't be out here. No, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, you've got to be right here up close. Yeah. <laughs> it's an asthma series. <laughs> so, Armand, I'm going to start kind of with the decade plus, and then we'll shift into the music stuff. But Let's do it. When I look across your career, the through line really seems to be product. That started back in college when you were a product advisor for Microsoft, and then it continued through Beeline, Luminary, Jack, all these startups that you worked for. So where did that fascination for product come from, and was it always tied to tech? That's a super good question. Where did the fascination for product come from? I have no idea. So really what happened was I was studying finance and accounting because I was supposed to, like many of us. Have been told. Uh, not that there was a lot of pressure actually for my family to specifically do that. But I guess when you don't actually know what you want to do, you just you go default. into what you're told makes sense. And yeah, so in my head, you know, once upon a time, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> my mom is an ultrasound tech, so I was like super fascinated with like radiology. And then my dad is a, was a finance controller and an accountant. And so interests across the board. But when I was in Boston, very quickly, what I realized was like, I've always loved the internet and tech. Like we grew up with the rise of the internet. So once upon a time, I remember there's a site called Angel Fire, which is like one of the first like easy ways to build a web page. And this was probably in like early middle school. And that was my first dabbling in creating like a website. So I was like, oh, what is this? Like you can put imagery, you can like talk about yourself, this, that, whatever. You can put links. Then you had the MySpace, which took over, which is basically your profile page and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So when I was up in Boston school, I realized that despite what I'm studying, I still like this concept of building a website. And so I used to dance a lot. I was on the Barna team yeah. at Northeastern. And at Northeastern, we got like zero funding from the school. So shout out to all the schools that fund all the South Asian activities and teams that exist because Northeastern sucked at that. Mm -hmm. 
but so being bootstrapped, we had to figure all that stuff out. And so one of you know, my mentality usually is, well, if we don't have the money for it, we got to do it in house. And that led me to basically figure out how to use software like Photoshop and all these other, you're familiar with all this stuff, right? I used to be big into music as a kid and making mixes and stuff. So point is, when we were on the team, we tried to do everything ourselves. And in that process, learning Photoshop, trying to build a website for the Barna team, very quickly, what ended up happening was I would build a design and then I'm like, okay, how do I make this come to life? Then I learned how to basically code up like a WordPress page or this, that, whatever. And I'm someone who usually reverse engineers things for solutions. So I would find templates and kind of break them apart and be like, okay, how do I piece it back together to make it work? And long story short, is that back and forth of like design something, figure out how to build it, design it better, build it better. Over the years, if you keep doing that, that actually reaches a point where you're just like, Pretty baller at both. I just totally shouted at myself there. Um, <laughs> it's all good. You deserve and, it. And uh, that essentially like puts you in the place of having good product knowledge. Because if you also appreciate business value and like growth, then I mean, you're set, right? Because some of the best product people in the world are the glue for the multiple types of teams that exist in a, what do we call it, a business or an idea. Yeah. Right? So... The thing that I brought to the table as I learned those skills was like, I can help glue the communication between designers and engineers because they usually speak very different languages, right? Designers want stuff to look pretty, hopefully interact well. And engineers are like, okay, well, we have to build this. So, you know, it has to be this way. So anyway, you need someone to mediate that and be like, Okay, guys, like this is how we're gonna make you happy. This is how we're gonna make the other team happy. Yeah. You you mentioned kind of going towards these other like professions like doctor, finance, those types of things when you didn't know what you wanted to do, right? So one thing that I find interesting is most of the companies that you've ended up working in have been smaller companies. Some of them you were within the first ten employees. Was that intentional? Was that something you found a passion for along the way? Like why did you not end up at a bigger company i feel like i operated with the assumption that large companies don't have flexibility and aren't cool because of that i i felt like not that i had the knowledge but i felt like if i work for a small team my ideas are going to be valued more and after the first few experiences that was the case and when you're young whether you're right or wrong (laughs) If you're able to put out an idea and have someone actually hear you and consider it, you're like, oh, yeah, shit. They appreciate my time and my thoughts. Let's go. Yeah. And that's, that's really it, right? So larger companies, I just assumed that's not a thing. And that's what I would hear. So, yeah, it just stuck with me. I just assumed smaller companies are cooler. That's really it. So, dude, a big reason why I wanted to bring you on the show is because you made this transition recently, shifting to music full-time from a decade of doing tech in VC. And you've made the shift both as an artist and as someone that's kind of setting up the infrastructure. So I want to dive into that. But before we even get into that, I want to start kind of in the beginning. So I know that 
music showed up early in your life. You were making mixtapes on cassettes for people who remember <laughs> what those were when you, when you were like four years old. From there, from that point, went four-year-old Armand through high school, through college, through some of the stuff that you've just been talking about. How did music show up in your life throughout that period? Were you still creating and performing or was it kind of like a dormant hobby? Yeah, looking back, I feel like it never left me. I think one issue which I hope our generation aims to fix, uh, when our generation tends to have more kids and raise families, I would love for us to all acknowledge the skills and interests that our kids have from an early age and double down and lean into it a bit more. And the reason I say that is because I'm going to shout out my parents. I love them as we all do. But here's an example. When you're four or five years old and you're sitting behind a boombox, literally as a child sitting on a kitchen counter <laughs> while your mom's like making roti and, and, and all of dinner, I'm literally there. Like there was this Indian radio station and there used to be like, so we're in New York, right? Z100, 103.5, all these like classic stations. And so I used to literally, so that story about the cassettes, right? I used to put in a blank cassette, um, which is crazy that, yeah, just blank cassettes. And you just don't hear about that stuff anymore. I used to put in a blank cassette and I used to have these like sticker labels. I used to put it on the cassette and like name it something it, corny. And um, I used to just put on different radio stations, right? So there was, there was Z100 and KTU and stuff. I used to play that and I used to wait for, I used to literally sit there and wait for like, songs that I thought were dope. Um, <laughs> one song that I super, uh, I well remember from back then was, you know the song? Boom, boom, boom. Let me hear say, way oh, way oh. Right? Yeah. So that shit used to come on 103.5. And I used to wait for that and be like, okay, I got to record this. It's got to be on the mixtape. So it used to come as soon as, and, and you don't know what the radio is going to play, right? So you have to hit record <laughs> as soon as the track is on. And so I used to, the track used to come on, I used to hit record and be like, okay, cool. And I, I stop it at the end, right? And then after like one or two English songs, I used to go to the Indian radio station. There was one Indian radio station. And it actually, this boom box that we got was from the Indian store because <laughs> only this boom box is able to get the Indian radio station. It's like a special frequency. And I used to put on the Indian radio station and wait for a dope song to come. And sometimes I remember there were days where like, I don't know. I felt like the music was boring. And so I remember one day I told my mom, I was like, mom, like, I really want them to play like such and such song, right? I can't remember which one. I want to say TNT, but that sounds like a little later in life. And so one day my mom goes, so why don't we call them? And I was like, what? Really? She's like, yeah. Like, which is dope, right? Because like, she uh, shout out my mom. Yeah. mom was like, shut the fuck up. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. um, Go study. What yeah. are you doing? And my mom's like, so why don't we call them? And there used to be this like hour or two that this uh, auntie used to run on the radio station where you could call in and request songs. So my mom would call in and one day she called in and this lady picked up and my mom gave me the phone. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> and I'm like, hello? <laughs> she's, like, she's like, hey, who's calling? And she realizes this kid on the phone and she's like, what's your name, Berta? And I'm just like, Armand. 
And apparently, I don't remember this anymore, but mom said like we developed this like relationship as like she was the hostess of the of the radio show and I was this like young little kid who used to call in. And some weeks she used to be like, Armand, nice to like hear from you again. What song can I play for you? And so that used to help me make cool mixtapes. Point is, uh, I think I'm veering off the conversation. No, you're good. Is that I used to make that stuff and ultimately as I moved forward from that moment, I got into piano. I played piano for like 15 years. Yeah. I learned from like a piano professor. Is uh, that an instrument that you picked or? No. Okay. Not that I hated it because I think it, it's a, it's foundational. Oh, like I don't think I'd be where I am in music. I don't know if I'd be as interested in, in music if I hadn't done that. I can't say whether or not I loved it. I think it was just something that was part of me and I just I just did it. Yeah. But um what's interesting is like, you know, I was doing piano in school from an early age, you're supposed to play an instrument. So I picked up the saxophone, but your boy had asthma. So I was like, I don't know. I think I used it as an excuse to be like, I can't do this. And so after a year of of uh, saxophone, all this sax is awesome. But after a year of saxophone, I was like, nah. And I used to see these kids who chose drums. And I was like, yo, they look really cool. I want to be a drummer. Mm-hmm. So I requested in school and like at the end of fourth grade, and I'm like, Yo, like, I don't really care about the saxophone. I wanna like those kids look cool. I wanna be a drummer. So they approved that, and I switched over to drums. Mm-hmm. I felt like the coolest kid in the world. I'm like, yo, yeah, screw the sax. I can like pick up drumsticks and play dope beats. So I learned how to play drums. Then in middle school, I think that was the first time I started using like really old shitty software to create mixes. Essentially, instead of doing cassette tapes now, like this is like post Napster era. Kazaa, LimeWire, shout out to all those P2P programs. (laughs) Um, And I used to start making mixtapes like like that and like sharing them with people. And and there were now websites that you could actually post music on and not get it taken down. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, this is cool. Like I can share a link to my shit. Hell yeah. Because at this point now, people know that I have good taste in music. So people hit me up to be like, send me new songs. Or like, which songs should I be listening to? And at that time, like when Napster... Bringing it back to Napster, I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm not alone in this, but like I would just sit on my computer day in and day out, just downloading songs. Mm-hmm. Like my library today still has tracks from back in the day when I downloaded stuff on Napster. And like my iTunes library, although I think iTunes is a terrible program now, it doesn't work the same. I, I checked yesterday, I have over 28,000 songs in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> And that some date from all the way back in the Napster era, like I down the same file, yeah. literally. Yeah. So anyway, I used to make mixes, and then I started DJing from a young age, probably like late middle school, early high school. I started DJing, small private gigs, random stuff, and then yeah, coming back to your question, what was the question? Again? As, as you got older, <laughs> like started working and stuff, were you still making music and interested in music? Because I feel like. A lot of people through college even because they have school clubs and stuff, they stick to their hobbies. Then they get out and they start working. And especially in the Desi community, it's kind of seen as like a waste of time if you're not making money with something, right? Or even investing into your art or into your hobby. It's kind of almost frowned upon or just not as common. So I'm curious, like throughout that period, if you were still interested in music or if this 
shift to non-resident and producing his Kahani, is that kind of a deviation from the last few years? Mm. Yeah. So, no, I think music lasted, uh, has been with me throughout. And I think that's what pushed me over the edge to be like, what am I doing? Yeah. This is what I really want to be doing. So prior to college, it was all like music's part of me, but you're living at home. No one's pushing you to be like, no one's telling you like, you can go to school for music yeah. or you can do anything in life that is going to support you that's music-based. Like just, I don't know. We just don't. We don't hear that. Our, the, our parents' generation was not about that, which I get. I, I, I do actually understand why. And we can get to that later. So going into college and beyond, it never left me, right? I think, in fact, I honed in on those skills and that interest because I used to be a dancer. And so being on the Bangra team, I was making all the mixes. And then when my mixes sounded cool and unique, other teams used to be like, hey. And I used to go by, I've switched my like name so many times. <laughs> Once upon a time, it was DJ Gupta. And then it was like DJ Armani. And then it became Armani. And then a slew of other things. And now we're at Kahani. But back in college, it was Armani. So I had this tag for all my mixes because I was like, yo, if they're going to play my mixes at big shows, people better recognize like I made that. So it used to be like, uh, 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 Armani. <laughs> Super corny. Yeah, so it never left me. And uh, I honed in on those skills. I, I used to do that more. But I think at that time, unless you're surrounding yourself with other people who are committed to focusing on the arts for their future, you just assume like that's not a thing. Yeah. You know, you can't do that. Yeah. So... You don't think about it. I actually want yeah. to ask you about that because right now, having started non-resident, you're surrounded by a lot of artists. Shishi, Naman, Rolex, Basati. Like, these are all people that you've been working with. But I also know that the actor Akash Yadav and you are like really good friends, right? Yeah. So do you feel like you doing all that creative stuff brought those people into your life? Or was it like you were surrounded by creative people and so you mm. kept doing creative stuff? Majority, I would say, were introduced because of music, okay. besides Akash. So Akash and I go back in school because we used to dance together. Okay. So that's why. And like he's he's in more of the, the film industry, which is super interesting to learn about. And so I hope that we can create a lot more stuff together like in the future as we both evolve in those fields. Yeah. But majority of artists and people in music I've met because... I've doubled down my stake in the industry yeah. and making it clear that I want in and I'm like learning every day yeah. what it takes to be in this industry. So like, come at me, let's go. Yeah. I um, love that because yeah. you're, you're kind of doing and then the opportunities are coming versus you looking for an opportunity and that type of thing. Yeah, I, well, I think entertainment is relationship based. Yeah. And so because of that, if you are going to sit in your chair and be like, okay, I'm just going to like, sit here every day, email people, this, that, whatever, and like try to find an opportunity, good fucking luck. I think it's way more, you have to do, you have to show people that you're ready to like get your hands dirty, get weird, as I always say, and show people that you're actually in it because otherwise, why is someone going to pay attention to you? Artists are struggling. Artists, managers, people, whomever in the industry, they're super busy. They have a lot of shit to do. They don't have time to waste. So arguably, it's like if you are not proving that if you do something with them, it's worth it, yeah. they're going to look the other way, oh, um, which yeah. is a huge... I mean, I th maybe that goes across all industries, but definitely in the entertainment industry, everything's relationship-based. Yeah. I think I had a pretty similar experience too because my first three guests, I think, on the show were yeah. just friends. People saw that I was consistent. I was putting out episodes. So I started to get 
other guests. I know this is a little bit different than collaborating with artists, but in the same way, you know, that started to happen. And then once we got like Forbes and like more coverage, then you started getting bigger guests. Shout out Forbes. (laughs) But it's just like you need to produce content before the thing lifts off, which is like... Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive. Well, So I have a question on that for you. Yeah. So when you say you need to produce content Mm -hmm. before you kind of move forward, explain that to me. Like, what is your thought process behind that? Like, why do you think that? Everyone has an idea for a podcast. Everyone has like a, uh, I'm going to start or I should start or, you know, that kind of thing. The other thing is many people have started podcasts, Mm -hmm. but they die at episode three. Because the person actually gets a taste of what it's like to sit there for 12 hours and edit. And then it's like... It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> and you're not even done. You know it. Oh, now, now you got to market it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just, it's so much work, right? And so if I want to collaborate with you, let's say, and you've put out a bunch of content, you want to know that I'm serious, right? Yes. And the way for me to show you that I'm serious is for me to put out 10, 20 apps. And listen, like, I tell this to everyone that, is like thinking about starting a podcast, you are not going to know what your show is for the first 10, 20 episodes because you are learning to podcast. You and I talked about like some people are uncomfortable in front of the mic. Yeah. It takes a few episodes to get over that. Right. So that's one thing. And people just need to get better about that. People need to like, I think if you're a creative, it's about time that you just like practice at home what it's like to be behind the camera and on the mic. Because like if you are in the creative industry, Unless you're behind the scenes, like if you have, if you plan on ever being front facing, yeah. start practicing now. Because like, yeah, to your point, people get in front of the mic. I see this all the time. You hand someone a mic and they just do weird shit with it. They're just like, <laughs> it's, like it's like 10 inches away from them. And then you have to be like, yo, like, please just raise it, like yeah. get closer to your face. And then they put it all the way up and then you're like, oh, God damn. Like, you know, <laughs> should have put a cover um, on and then Yeah. And then um, <laughs> even with video, right? People are like, just like fiddling. Th- and that's okay. Like people figure that out. It takes time, but start yeah. practicing. Yeah. yeah. Do it. Dude. Um, and, and mics are sexy. They make you sound real good. They do. Yeah. Especially these. <laughs> yeah. Get a little lower. <laughs> but the other thing is you, if you produce content, you get the opportunity to watch yourself and you get yes. the opportunity yeah. to like, see what you need to change and like develop Mm -hmm. that skills. But so that's basically what I meant though. I think like if you want to produce, you just need to start producing. You can't be looking for opportunities. And the way I went about that was I made a very public announcement that I was going to launch this thing. When did you launch this? Uh, About a year ago. Nice. Yeah. So I made the announcement on LinkedIn, on Facebook, everywhere. And then I was like, this is my start date. This is the day it's coming out. Then I have to go. What was the initial reaction? from people it's always good dude i think people admire but, but but talk to me about that for a second because i think a lot of us when we announce something for the first time all of our friends rally behind us but it's like it it's almost good. for the sake of it yeah because they just think like oh he's doing something okay we have to congratulate him but it's like but do you really support me how can you really support me so yeah. i know what you're saying and i think i was actually thinking about a different thing so i'll come back to that in a second mm-hmm. but i think too many people live off the high of the announcement because <laughs> do yeah. the worst yeah. Is when you hit episode three, and now no one's talking about it anymore. And you're like, do I keep doing this? Well, you've got to make it hot. You have to figure out. I mean, that's the game, right? You have to. People's attention span sucks these days. Um, It's it's getting worse. People want to support you as a friend, so they'll like your stuff and all that. But by three, it becomes mundane to them. So now you have to find your real audience, right? Yes. And that is key because I think, I deal with this with artists all the time. Emerging artists often if they're new to the system, if they're new to the game, they can be super talented. But at the end of the day, of course that matters. 
But I had an artist the other day like message me. I've never met him before. He sent me his stuff. He's like, hey, I've seen what you're doing. I would, I would love for you to listen to my stuff, this, that. I listened to it and he asked for feedback, yeah. right? So I didn't just blindly be like, here's <laughs> no. what you should do. Yeah. You know, because I'm sensitive to that too. Because yeah. I'm like, I didn't ask you for feedback. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So he asked me for Talking feedback. Talking to your parents, bro. Yeah. <laughs> they see parents. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and he asked me for feedback and I, I sent him a couple notes. And I was like, hey, like this sounds like this. You should do this. And he's like, okay, cool. Thanks so much. And then I messaged him and I was like, hey, one of the most important things to remember though at this stage, and because I'm trying to gauge like where he is in the journey. Yeah. And I'm like, it, independent of how much music you put out, whatever. I told him, like, if you're starting now, start building your audience. Things are not like they were 10 years ago. You have to start building your audience now. And I say that because I have an, a, another artist who I can mention, Aman. He's someone who uh, I work with and he's, he's a super talented. But we talk about this all the time because he put out like a small EP last year. Mm. Sound is cool. It's interesting. But I think, um, and he's not alone in this, that, you know, when you talk about numbers, let's say for what it's worth on IG, for example, if you're like pre 1K followers or whatever, you're in just like the lower numbers, you kind of are in this circle of, how do I grow? Because I always tell them like, you have to grow your audience. And it's not just IG. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Part of it's like quality, right? Just because you increase numbers doesn't actually make a difference. The quality of the subscribers or the followers that are engaging with you yeah. are what matter. Yeah. And ultimately, I think in the artist world, what matters the most is who is going to drop their shit and come to your show? Who's going to fill a room? Who's going to put down their credit card for a ticket? Because people forget that. People are like, oh, I'm close to like 10K followers. I can drop an album. It's going to be hot. Or I'm going to do a show in this city. And it's like, okay, yeah, announce your show. Let's see who comes. Mm -hmm. Be smart. I'm all for do shows. Get out there. Be crazy. But remember, like your job as an artist is to build a fan base and express your music or, or whatever you're doing in that way, but build your audience along the way and make sure that as you do it, build a relationship with them. Make sure that they love you just as much as you want them to love you. And you have to tie it into the physical world. Yeah. When you announce something, are people going to come line up for you and pay for you? Stop living in this free world. You need to get paid. When you complain about like, I'm not making any money as an artist, are you working towards your fan base paying you for your work because that's how you really know that they want more. Yeah. Just guys, do that, yeah. please. Speaking of growing, you're following. <laughs> I have been hinting at non-resident for a bit. Do you want to just give us your rundown of what it is, how you describe it? Non-resident, what isn't it? Um, <laughs> so we are a record label that also operates very much as a agency. And what I mean by that is that at our core, we are focused on music. But what we really want to do is build a foundation for artists, ultimately like South Asian creatives. But I think we're really looking at it through the lens of music first. And the route in which we want to take that is coming from 10 years in tech and startups and, and uh, a little bit in VC. What I learned as a product person, as a designer, as a business person, all these different roles that I played. So I was like, if you're starting business, 
if you understand startups and you understand what it takes to take an, an idea, bring it to market, get people to be like, oh, this is interesting. And like, just move forward with it stage by stage. If you understand the fundamentals of that, you can do that with any idea. It doesn't matter what industry it's in. Mm-hmm. So the funny quick story about how this started was I was in tech and startups for a long time and I, I still love the space. I mean, I dabble in that stuff all the time. It's a, true. He tweets at Elon a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and, I didn't want to call you up, <laughs> but I had to. Uh, so I, I spent a year helping like build a, a venture fund here yeah. in New York. And towards the end of that year, it just so happened. It was a really interesting end of summer and and whatever. And so when I started at this venture fund, that was the same time where I actually like part-time committed to non-resident. I had already started an agency called The Dialects, which we were working with different brands through the lens of being like a South Asian entrepreneur and, and all this stuff. So I was committed more to music. In fact, at that time, I was like working with one of my really good friends who I hired at my last company. I helped hire at my last company who was an iOS engineer. And it's funny because in that interview, so I interviewed him. And one, one day, maybe you should talk to him. So his name's Zane. And in the interview, so he comes in, we sit down at a table like this. I'm someone when I run interviews, I've seen your resume. Like, I don't really care. I want to know who you are. Because uh, on paper, it's like, I don't need you to re- regurgitate what I see. So I just ask weird questions. And so I think, I was like, what interests are you in, uh, into? Or what music do you listen to? Which is like, why the fuck would you ask that in a, in a <laughs> iOS <laughs> engineering <laughs> interview? And I'm pretty sure he said Sufi music. And I was like, what, really? And we started talking about artists and we started talking about Nusha Fateh Ali Khan, which I'm like, absolutely, you know, God bless, rest in peace. One of my favorite artists ever. And literally when he said that, I was like, you're hired. I was like, like, you get a gold star from me. Anyway, and so in that process, I learned that he was an artist and he was a vocalist and he used to produce music as well. Mm -hmm. And he had a band and he did this like cool stuff. And so I had actually never gotten into music production properly for a long time. I, I made mixes, I dabbled in production, but it was a lot of mixing mashups as opposed to crafting and recording raw production, using a beat pad, using a MIDI keyboard to actually create sounds. So one day I'm like, yo, like we got a jam. I don't even have much stuff at home at that time, but I was like, let's just fucking do it. Like I played toll, you sing, let's do some weird shit. And he comes over and he pops open Logic. Logic is one of many like audio software tools, DAWs. DAWs yeah. <laughs> and um, he pops that open and I'm like, oh shit, this guy know, knows Logic. And Logic had always, I was always fearful of it for some reason. So there was this program that I used to use in college called Sony oh. Acid. Oh, and it was only for Windows. Acid. And so I used to use that, but I didn't, I never moved to Logic because I was always like, I'm too fearful of this. It's going to, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs. And um, I quickly was like, yo, can you just, can you just like, can I watch you make some stuff? And so I watched him for like maybe a day. And I'm like, yo, this is dope. I can get this. And I'm someone where I learn super fast. And like, if I'm committed to it, like I can't do video tutorials. I will pay someone to be in the room with me. And if I can watch them for an hour, do something, that's it. That's all I need. So I watched him and I'm like, I just got hooked. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best producer in the world. I'm not there yet, but we're heading Underway. in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I started producing 
And I wait. I'm. Can I just pause you? Yeah. So I'm curious what it is about music that grabs you so hard. Because, dude, like I've noticed you've done a lot of Bangra stuff, like tutorials. Yeah. He has a Bangra video dancing in a Deadpool costume. Like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I, I dig. Yeah. yeah I do my hey. research. <laughs> you do do your research. Yeah, you thought I wouldn't find yeah. it. No. Um, what else have you found? <laughs> but why is it? What is it about music as a medium? that makes you feel different or that compels you to like move it forward. Do you mm. see the business opportunity in that? Damn. Or is it like the medium itself and, and you want to advance it? Yeah. So I and for context. It's funny. The following that I've built thus far actually started from dance, which is why it's very interesting to me as, as a technical person, someone who understands analytics, I'm always seeing like, how am I performing? And technically I think I have not, in numbers grown significantly, but it's because my audience is actually, I started growing my audience because like one or two or three of my dance videos went viral. Shout out for the people who reshared them and like Bali Shake has been a big supporter in some of our stuff. And so I remember I did this, the first video that went somewhat viral or whatever. We got tapped to go to Bali for a gig, okay. um, which is fire because these people were having, it was like a destination wedding. And they were like, we want a dance team to perform. So we put together a team of eight people from different countries all over the world. And we show up and it was like, we're not paying for any of this. All right, let's go. They're going to pay for all eight of us to fly out to Bali to dance for 10 minutes. This is like a bongra <laughs> yeah. dance. Yeah. Okay. And so anyway, we do that. And the last night, so one of the dancers on the team, she's from... I hope I don't get this wrong. I believe she's from Denmark. Her name's Christine. She's a really dope punger dancer. Yeah. Wait, uh, South Asian? or She's not South oh, Asian. Cool. Actually, this team was really cool that we put together. Shout out Lavesh because Lavesh runs Learn Bhangra. And yeah, he put together, he helped put together like a team of people from diverse Bhangra cultures. Dancers, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. um, so it was really cool. So she goes, yo, my friend who's this artist, Rajveer Javanda, he just put out this new song. And it's like, I want to say it's like 3 a.m., 3, 4 a.m. And we're just like, we're pretty wasted. We're just outside chilling at our hotel. And she's like, yo, he just put out this song. It would be really cool if you could do a dance to it. And I'm like, low-key blacked out, right? <laughs> um, and I'm like, okay, cool, let's do it. And she just plays it, right, off her phone. And this video is on my IG. And I just straight up just freestyle, right? like 45 seconds dude i think i've seen this <laughs> yeah yeah and um yeah and i don't know she just recorded it and she sent it to him and like i, I guess i posted it then he reposted it and it was, and is it like in a white shake. dining hall area kind of okay. yeah yeah and i'm yeah. wearing all black <laughs> i think i've seen and it. yeah dope. It's I a, don't, it's a, it was a dope yeah i don't really remember what i did or Sorry. how i did it but yeah it was whatever and um yeah. and yeah so i keep going off topic but so like, why? What was it about music? So it sounds like Bangra helped you launch your following, but yes, that's, that's so that now. Makes me now even... I now I keep transitioning where it's like for every fault, like I'm not posting dance stuff anymore. Yeah. So for every, there's this thing in my head of like, well, how do you grow? How do you measure your growth? And so then I came to this realization like a year, year and a half ago, where I'm just like, well, if I'm not committed to posting more dance content, then naturally I'm going to lose my dance following, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm posting more music content and the stuff, this route, the avenue that I'm going, then I'm going to be gaining followers there. And so it's been an interesting journey over the last like year and a half, two years, where I see this switchover of my 
fan base per se, people who fuck with me, which is fine. And I'm like, I don't care about the numbers because I care about the quality first, right? I can have 16,000 followers, but if they all want dance stuff, they don't care about my music stuff, then that doesn't help me. So yeah, going to music, when I was at the VC thing, like that year, a couple of good friends were getting married. There were a couple of weddings back to back in Mexico. I, for the first time, went, it was like a three week trip. Okay. In November of 2019, right before the pandemic. And realistically, and I, I, I want to, this is super important because I want to make sure that anyone listening understands the context here. It's super important to be aware of how distracted or even like deep in the weeds you are to like what you're trying to do and how important it is to like turn off sometimes. It's very hard for me to turn off. And by turn off, I mean literally being in a space where you are not necessarily thinking about what's next or work or life or whatever. It's very hard sometimes for people to do that. And I am one of those people. I never turn off. I'm like always go, 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 go. And so I realized because, I mean, it's two of my really close friends' weddings back to back in Mexico of all places. Like I'm like, naturally, I just actually for the first time I turned off and I didn't realize this till later. And so after those three weeks, I ended up coming back to New York and immediately when I came back to New York, going into, into the office the next day, I was like, what am I doing? Because on my way to the office, I was like dreading it. And I'm like, this sucks. Why do I feel this way? And I'm like, because I don't want to be doing this. What I want to be doing is what I'm thinking about, which is like, how do I do the next thing in music? How do I get more artists involved in this? How do I meet more artists? And so in that moment, that week, I said bye to VC. And I was like, I am going to commit fully to non-resident. Yeah. Um, so that stop kind of gave you the break that you needed. Because this sounds dramatic, but the feeling of dread maybe just was normalized. Or you just weren't thinking because you were going to work every day, that kind of stuff. We live in a capitalistic world. And let's be real, we live in New York City. Yeah. Like, you <laughs> Rent. Need, yeah. You know, you, know you, need, you need to pay your bills. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very easy to operate off the mentality of like, well, I can't do this because how am I going to make money? And given that's a true, I understand that fear. And I don't recommend that anyone just jumps into something without a plan. Not that I had a super grand plan, but if you go blindly, you should be very comfortable with it. And I think coming from startups, I have a stomach for ups and downs and like turbulence. Yeah. Yeah. Like turbulent i'm like just strap me in let's go i don't give a fuck about turbulence i'm like let's let's do this i think in the music and in entertainment you need to know what that's like and if you don't you're not getting your hands dirty (laughs) like that means you're spoiled (laughs) so let me so there's two questions i have that focus on non-resident one is so the term non-resident comes from NRI, but you decided to drop the I. Yes. Can you explain that? So I I told you the agency we started, it was called the Dialects. And the original meaning of that was I was just, India has, I want to say it's like 62 dialects. And that's the most for any country in the world. And so it was interesting for me. The concept of dialects actually is super interesting to me in, in itself. And so then when I started moving towards the label, and I was like, I want to double down music, I don't know. I just felt like the dialects wasn't doing it enough for me. So I went through this branding exercise for myself and the company and I started coming up with names. And then NRI was something that I had jotted down 
And I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is a fun play off it. And then I looked at it and I was like, but I don't want to be just, I don't want Indian tied to it. And for two reasons. One is when it comes to, let's say, South Asian artists, like, I really fuck with South Asian artists. And that's because it shouldn't be just about India. South Asia is more than just India. That's yeah. a big reminder. And so there are incredible artists out of Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Nepal that I'm just like, yo, hello. Like, it's not just India. Yeah. Um, like, Anik Khan is one of the biggest ones. And yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. he has Bangladesh roots. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, when I looked at the word, I was like, okay, I don't want Indian because of that. And as this becomes more successful, I want to help South Asian artists, let's say, if, we, if we're focused on that first, meet artists from from the MENA region and from different countries in Europe. I want artists from our label to be fucking with like the guys and girls on 88 Rising, right? From the East Asian side. There's this whole bridge that that are not built yet. So I don't I did I just wanted to drop the Indian because I was like, long tail, I would love to support artists from various diasporas across the world. Yeah. So when we look at people that kind of shifted the music industry, two things that come to mind. One example that I've heard you give before, Jay-Z and Diddy, they go hey. in. <laughs> Hip-hop is like, at that time, kind of the back end is, is managed by white people, essentially. So they reclaim yes. hip-hop for black artists and mm -hmm. with their own labels. On the other hand, we have kind of like YG Entertainment, where they take Korean artists, basically equip them to kind of come into the mainstream, right? Like, So the music is in Korean, or it's a mix of English and Korean, but they take Western roots. They know that stuff is mainstream and they enable these people to launch. So how is what you're doing with non-resident different or similar to those two paths? Do you feel like you're closer to one or the other? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that yet. I have no idea. I think we will be a hybrid of both. Yeah. Um, Do you look to them as inspiration? or? I would say I look to 88 Rising as a big inspiration. I would also say I look to what Jay-Z and Diddy did. What they did was at a time that, I mean, things have shifted so much. The way things operate, the way things work is so different that inspiration is there. Yes. The path that they took is like arguably just it, the Top world squeeze. has changed, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I look, I definitely look at the 88 Rising Squad and how they came up as a good example of what someone or a, a team that's interested in being in the music industry, what they can do. And then also the artist behind it. I think one of the biggest things that we need to solve is getting, and this is not just an artist thing, but getting South Asian people to get along better and not be as competitive. And actually, let me take that back. Let's all be competitive, but let's not fuck each other over in the process. I say this to a lot of people. I'm like, for example, the word selfish has a negative connotation. I don't agree with that. I think we all should be selfish. And the reason I say that is because being selfish isn't a bad thing. People say like, why can't I love someone? It's If you don't know how to love yourself, how can you love somebody else? And so if you take that concept and translate it to like everything else, it's like, well, if you're just going to be out there and fend for yourself all the time, and this is something that I see in the industry, yeah. is that there's a ton of great South Asian artists across the board. Yeah. How many of them are helping each other rise up? Everyone's just out there literally being selfish in the negative way yeah. where they're just like i'm putting my blood sweat and tears into this so like 
I don't care about other people. But let's bring up the example of why the Latin American music scene has risen. is because literally all those artists that we all hear about, Bad Bunny, J Balvin, Rosalia, Anuel, all these guys and girls are working together. They each individually have their own paths. They're putting out their own shit. But every month, they basically hit each other up on a WhatsApp group like, hey guys, I have this song. It could use some features. Who wants to hop on? And they're just like, oh, I'll hop on. And boom, they drop a banger. And the world goes crazy. And here's the important part, right? Two things happen when they drop that song, right? When J Balvin drops a song, notice how, because it's a single, oftentimes, let's say J Balvin drops a track and I'm just using random artists here, but let's say Bad Bunny and Rosalie are on it. They're both getting tagged as primary artists. What's important in that is that all three of their stats move up in that process. Jay Balvin is the one who said, this is my track. There's room for others. Let's go. And then when he drops that, then they're basically like, okay, whose turn is it next? Yeah. Right? Why doesn't that shit happen with us? Right? Because people are just like, no, no, this is this is mine. Like, I, I'm going to be picking. How are you supposed to rise up together then? Dude, I actually want to touch on that because when I started my podcast, I definitely had that sense of like, especially I was doing my MBA at the time. All you yeah. talk about is competition, right? So yeah. I had competition is good. No, it, yeah. is, it is when it's executed Healthy the right way. Yeah. yeah, this is the, the piece of advice that I'd give to people that are feeling competitive or that feel alarmed by what you're saying right now. Just force Be yourself, <laughs> force yourself to collaborate with someone because yeah. what ended up happening for me is... The moment I met the other podcasters, it was like, we both have a shared interest. There's a hundred percent reason why we would get along and be good friends, you know? And then it just turned into this spiral of like, hey, you need this. I need that. Like my Forbes feature, like it came through another podcaster that I had previously featured in a clubhouse room that I was like running. And so mm. it's just everyone helping each other, just like you're saying, bringing each other's stats up. But that first step for people who are hesitant I think you just need to force yourself to do it. And the, the other thing and, is... And like, do it tastefully. No one's saying, like, even if you do it forcefully, yeah. that doesn't mean you need to, like, forgo your quality bar. Yeah. And I, I urge everyone to have a high standard for that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't collaborate. Yeah. That doesn't mean you can't find someone interesting. Get out there. Get your hands dirty. Yeah. And, and the way that I've gone about it is I try to be an open book. Like, if anyone yeah. asks me stuff, I'm not... There's no trade secrets, you know? Yeah. Here's my script. (laughs) Well, so that's interesting, right? I I, like, I do think that there are things in every, whether you're an artist, entrepreneur, whatever. Yeah. Like when you talk about trade secrets, I think it is important to understand the unique value that you bring to the table and like what you're willing to share and keep behind closed doors. Yeah. Because there is, you know, that makes sense. If you have magic sauce, like how much do you just put out there, right? Because ultimately it's like when you're growing a company, like let's say, for this podcast, right? If you have some magic sauce other people don't know about, it's like, how much do you want to share versus, I'll share this with you. If you sign a contract that says like, you're working with me and you're an employee now. And so if you fuck me over and the company over it, then you will be in trouble. And so now because of that, I'm willing to trade secrets with you. Yeah. It, you know, it's like- there, There's a calculus there, but my thing is this. From the competition standpoint, if yeah. I show you my stuff, it ele- and it elevates your podcast, that forces me to improve my podcast. That's fair. That's a mindset that I have. But the other thing is, and this is like a very technical way of looking at competition, but if I show you my stuff and you can replicate it and I've now lost my edge, I don't think it was a true edge. 
Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like part of the game is finding what you can do uniquely or different yes. that even if I were to show you, you just wouldn't be able to take it. One of the things that I, I, I've told so many people how I form my questions, right? Yeah. But the reason that's safe, the reason I can do that is because a lot of people just won't take the three, four hours to research someone. Yeah. And yeah. and when they do, they'll still ask the, how did you get into music? That kind of stuff. I mean, I led this by telling you about the mixtapes, right? Like, yeah, that was dope. I that came out with that. I didn't ask yeah, you yeah. for it. So like, yeah. it's hard to write questions, dude. It really is. And and I, I don't mean, know how you did. I'm guys for context. I'm just like across the table here. <laughs> there's three pages of awesome stuff. I have no idea what's on it, but I'm like, damn, it is research. Um, so says yeah. Deadpool right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, dude, but okay. So I want to dive in a little bit into you as an artist, into Kahani, and kind of your identity. So yeah. I'll just start with the fact Kahani means story in Hindi. I've now heard that you went with Armani and all these other names. Yeah. So I don't know if that was homage, homage, whatever, homage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. to your roots, or if it was just picked because you thought it was like a dope word. But like a lot of the music that you mix as well has a lot of Bollywood in it. I think you had a project called Indian Cinema for a while. So... In, in a way, when I look at you as, as an artist, you're very proudly or very clearly wearing the South Asian on your sleeve, right? Yeah. I'm curious if you've ever had moments in your life where that was hard to do or you felt uncomfortable expressing the, your South Asian identity. No. Okay. I don't think I ever did. So, I, I mean, I grew up in the Burbs and I went to a, a school district where like I have 3,000 kids. I was one of maybe six, seven brown kids. And it's also very interesting because as a, so my family is Indian, but in my school district, it was, it was very interesting because all of the other brown kids besides one other person, I think they were all Pakistani. And so I grew up learning about like Pakistani culture, literally from those other five people. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think always it was weird, but growing up in a school district with all white people, I would assume that you question when to be brown and when not to be. And I think the dynamic that I had was like at home, listen to brown music, my you know, just felt normal. Yeah. Um, I watched Bollywood movies and I loved that stuff. Um, I listened to a lot of uh, Indian music. And I think in school, you know, talking to the white kids, you, you, I look back and I really do think now, yeah, it all makes sense. Like there was just no culture, right? Because yeah. like, I mean... There's no such thing as white culture. It's cultureless. <laughs> and so my assumption is just that white people are interested in other cultures, hopefully the ones who are, because they're looking for something. For the inside jokes. Them. The, yeah. The whatever. Stuff, yeah. 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 And so we had this thing in school, ICS, International Culture Society. Yeah. And so we had once a year these nights where you could essentially express being a kid from a culture. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I don't think I ever... So I had a similar environment, one of very few brown kids in yeah. school, right? Same thing. I was very Indian at home, spoke Telugu, watched Telugu movies, ate dosa, all that stuff. Okay. Thumbs up. Are both sides of your family? Telugu, okay. yeah, yeah. And then I go to school and it's like very different. Like, I feel like that entire part of me, I didn't have kind of a expression or an outlet for it. Did you like play your music for your white friends and stuff? I mean, at that time, would you show them the Indian songs? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like at, I, at the Culture Society nights or whatever, I used to DJ them. I used to drop all these tracks and like, yeah, the white kids who knew me, they totally like knew the, the, the brown stuff. I think I became more comfortable with that stuff in high school. And that's because 
freshman year, the first Culture Society night, until freshman year, I don't think I was super, super into it, or I didn't necessarily wear it on my sleeve. But in ninth grade, okay, April of 2004, we had Culture Society night, and this guy named Rohit was DJing the night, right? Yo, there were two Indian DJs at your school? He wasn't. No, no, he was at another school. He came for this. He came for this. No, 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 he came for this. And uh, that'd be yeah. You're like what? (laughs) Out of seven kids. Um, So he was DJing that night, and he dropped a track that I will never forget. Maybe you know this song, but it's called "Ani Kordier" by Dr. Zeus. Okay. I might if I heard it. Okay, everyone, look up that song. You probably all know it, but that song played, and I lost my shit. I was like, what? the fuck is this and it was it was the epitome of like hip-hop and punjabi music and this like uk touch and just like i was like what the what on earth is this and i just looked at him in awe like sir what are you playing and then i like concentrated more and then i listened to some more and i was writing down these names like things i was writing down like lyrics that i heard so like, i have to go up. look these up yeah that night i went on a i think we were at the limewire era by then i went on limewire and i was on there till five in the morning just downloading tracks everything by dr zeus everything by all these different different artists and i was obsessed and from that moment is i think where i started wearing it on my sleeve more because i was like holy shit there's people putting out really dope unique South Asian music that isn't Bollywood necessarily or call it now they call it like independent music, non-film music. Until a certain age, you just assume everything is film oriented. But there was a huge scene of non-film oriented stuff, but it wasn't surfaced. And so when I found that, I was like, wait, this is a thing. And dude, yeah, you got to listen to that song. Another question I have for you then is someone asked you about why K-pop is popular and you pointed out when you take a K-pop song, it's, Where'd you do your research? <laughs> trade secret. <laughs> no, hit me up. I'll tell you. <laughs> but you said that a typical K-pop song, yes, yeah, there's Korean words and that's what makes it K-pop. But the beat, the instrument, all the writing, like everything Musically, behind the scenes yeah. is basically westernized. There's no Korean ethnic instruments, none of that, right? So with your music you're tying in a lot of straight, like you pick up Bollywood songs and you know, you put them in cause you're DJing them into other songs. Are you concerned about, do you think it's feasible for you to go mainstream? Do you even care about that kind of stuff? Me you know? individually? Yeah. When you think about Kahani mm-hmm. or even some of the artists that you're working with and they're mm-hmm. incorporating strong elements of South Asian culture, A, do you believe it's possible for them to go mainstream? What do you define as strong South Asian elements? South Asian instruments, lyrics, like like but when I mean, you say strong, what is that like in a given track? What does that mean to you? So if we take Young Shark by Tesher, mm-hmm. I would say that's like a light South Asian element. It's like a reference at the start of the song mm-hmm. to a Hindi song, but the rest of the song is pretty much just westernized, right? Like, yeah. If I but t- a lot of ly- the writing has a lot of connections to like arguably if you're not South Asian, you won't understand Catch a lot of the writing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, even with that type of stuff, do you believe like these artists can go mainstream? And do you think that's important? Or do you, would you say like, this is a subculture and for people that understand it, it should be out there. We don't need to change it to get these artists more listens and that kind of stuff. Just So, I, I want to highlight something. So, you just said, yeah. you, you posed this thing of like, 
should artists question, you know, do we need to change it? Do I need to change whatever it is yeah. in order to go mean whatever? That's a really tough question to answer because my gut is always like, you shouldn't change it for something that you don't truly believe in because mm-hmm. that then your art isn't authentic anymore. Yeah. And, and wait, let me yeah. preface with, so one part of that is, do we even need to, right? And then the other component is, if so, do we? Do we even need to? I, no, I would say no. Mm-hmm. But but here's the thing. If you're an artist, you have to ask yourself two questions. One, like, are you making, you should always be making art for yourself first. But at the end of the day, if you have an intention of growing, there is this thing of like, you got to pay your debts to the society first. So in the entertainment industry, in music, whatever, obviously, if you're at the bottom right now, sometimes you may have to do things that you may not love. People are going to hear me say that and be like, oh, fuck that. Teach their own, man. Then like, keep doing your thing, but then also don't complain if you're not growing. So you have to figure out your methodology there. But ultimately, if you're copying something that already exists, then it's not unique. Good luck on your journey, but how are you standing out? You have to make yourself stand out. Everyone wants to be big. And arguably, like what I want to do at non-resident is help people. I hate this concept of mainstream, but I, it makes sense. I would love to help South Asian artists, first and foremost, get out there. And so I think um, a lot of the artists that we work with, I'm taking the approach of like, most of the artists we work with, they're not really... Like if you didn't know they were brown, Mm -hmm. their music doesn't highlight that. You're not going to be able to tell they're brown if you just listen to me. If I blindly play you tracks from some of these people, you may not know they're brown unless you're really paying attention. You're just like, for example, Anjali Thaneja. Shout out Anjali Thaneja. She's one of the most beautiful voices. And if I hide her name, you may not know that she's brown unless you're really paying attention and you hear her add maybe a South Asian scale or an alap into a run, mm. randomly into a song. You're like, wait, that was cool, right? That's something that a regular non-South Asian artist would never do. And so then immediately, like, that's interesting, right? And there's multiple artists who do that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. But yeah, it, the, you know, going mainstream, I think, should be a goal. Everyone wants people to listen to them. Yeah. You just want a massive crowd to sit there be like, I love you. I want to listen to your stuff. I think you're great. Keep going. Yeah, That's all we want. We just want validation. And I love that because it's also like, often when I think about this, I'm thinking about you need to go mainstream to make it. Yeah. But what you just said, not everyone has to listen to you. You just need your massive crowd, whatever yeah. size that is. I mean, so like yeah. and a, a really quick, like inspirational little story. So there's a there's an artist here in New York. His name is uh, Heather. So we did like a little concert called Small Stage. We do these from time to time. It's modeled after So Far Sounds. It's like an intimate vibe, 70, 80 people. We do it at either like apartments or rooftops. Super cool. So I was blessed to have him as one of the one of the artists that night, along with one of his co-collaborators, PDMY. Anyway, after the show, we have an after party at my boy Shishi's place. This was actually the first time I'm really like sitting down and hanging out with Heather, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're by this window and we're just like, kicking it and he says something which is very interesting and he goes yo man i really appreciate what you're doing you're doing it differently i'm like yo thank you i i you know i i i'm happy that you see the vision but like 
at the same time, I also know like you barely know the vision. So I appreciate you, you know, but like, let's talk more. And in that process, I, we were talking about his music and his view. And one thing he said, which is an inspirational thing, which is connected to this topic is he was like, yo, we're going to get a Grammy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, that's like balls of steel. Yeah. Like, all right. Okay. <laughs> cool. And I'm like, okay. Like, why do you want a Grammy? He's like, because that's the standard, right? That like, that's the thing. That's the award mm. that is looked at as like, you did it. And that's a very interesting concept, right? Because arguably there's a ton of artists who are just like, the Grammys are rigged, yeah. right? It's just yeah. like most award shows, they're rigged in a certain way. And it's mm. about numbers and it's about... It's very rare to get a Grammy unless you have Atlantic or Warner or one of these massive labels pushing your stuff. Mm. So anyway, he said that. I was just like fascinated where I'm like, okay, in this guy's head, that's the target goal, right? Like maybe he wakes up in the morning and his manifesto is like, I'm the fucking shit. And because I make good stuff, I understand my art and I'm going to get a Grammy. And maybe he wakes up and tells himself that every day. And maybe that's why he will. Because like if you hear his music, I think it's a very good example of what could be when you talk about K-pop and how it, it's molding and people who are absolutely not from that region all over the world are appreciating that music. Between music and his writing is an example of like, maybe this could work. Maybe if more people listen to this, it could work. Now the question is, how do we get more people to listen to it? I feel like that was just like a... I mean, I, I get your point, but I almost took it in a very different way. Okay. Which is... So many people without thinking, they just aim for the Grammy, right? Like the, the the conversation we had before about like, how do you survive as an artist, like getting this massive following? And I just feel like it's it's this massive analogy to like, your parents want you to be happy. And so they mm-hmm. see like being a doctor as, as it's just like the default target for an artist, like the Grammy is the default target, right? But you know, I, because we all validation, like in yeah. at the end of the day, it's almost like, why do you want an award? You want an award because we all assume that if we have this award, this accolade that we can just put on a shelf, that it's proof that our work was worth something. And that's fine. Like, I'm not against that, right? Like, in a way, it is a way to open more doors. Like, arguably, any artist who gets a Grammy, as soon as you get that Grammy, the amount of doors that pop open for you are insane, right? So I get it. If someone asked me, like, if I would want a Grammy, I'd be like, yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. That'd be dope. But but I think like being more thoughtful about your targets is just something that we could all kind of strive for more. Well, I think it's the concept of like you can have, let's say you have this dream of of wanting a Grammy. Grammy, let's say from where you are today, the Grammy is all the way over there. And that's fine to have that goal. Mm -hmm. But what's super important is to make sure that what are all the goals until you get there? Yeah. You got to write that stuff out and you got to day by day start knocking those off because you, you can't just be focused on the end one because you have no idea then how to get there. So you have to have that. And see, that's like startup 101, <laughs> road mapping. <laughs> so, dude, we've only got a little bit of time left here. So I'm going to make these next two kind of rapid fire questions. Let's go. Let's go. But the first one is, so performing is Kahani. You're also doing non-resident. So mm-hmm. give me like two or three ways that being a performing artist has helped you also build non-resident. Okay, cool. So how do I do this rapid fire? So for the last year and a half, I've been managing some artists and it was great. Shishi, Nama, and Hani. And uh, in that process, what I learned was it's a lot of work. And being an artist myself, I tried to always learn like, well, how do we take things forward? And so coming to now, what I learned was 
coming fresh into the music industry, it's a relationship-based industry. And no matter how hard you work, unless you're building relationship, doors are closed. And so I felt like I'm reaching this point where I'm like, a lot of doors aren't opening fast enough for me and I'm greedy. And so I'm just like, yo, like open the door. And uh, recently I've, I've been doing these shows and putting out music. And so I was approached by a gentleman named Sammy Chand yeah. who runs Ruckus Avenue. And I had a song which is not out yet, but I was like, I hit him up and I'm like, yo, Sammy, we haven't talked in a while, but I have this song and I use a sample which is owned by EMI Pakistan. I'm wondering if you can help me get it cleared. And he's like, yeah, maybe. And he listens to the song and he then called me the next day. I was like, hey, have you thought about management? Because I see something here and I've been seeing what you're doing and I am interested in maybe figuring out a management thing with you. Yeah. I see what your vision is, I think. Yeah. So in that moment, the question that was posed to me was like, fuck, I'm not sure if I want to be an artist artist. Like yeah. it's always been a side thing for me in this music game. Yeah. But then the question that I posed myself was, well, there's another team out here who's willing to take out time from their day to help you move forward. If I commit to being an artist and double down on it and people think my shit's good, then ultimately doors will open for me as an artist. If those doors open for me as an artist, can I then take those relationships and apply them to the business I'm building and the artists that I fuck with? And then it all made sense. I'm like, okay, fuck yeah. It's a means to an end. Yeah, yeah. Am I trying to be the next biggest thing? I have no idea. Yeah. We'll take it day by day. We'll figure it out. But ultimately, if I'm just putting out good stuff, people are fucking with it, doors are opening for me, then I want to leverage those relationships with the other artists yeah. that I mess with. Makes sense. I, I definitely saw the process part of it. You're an artist, yeah. so now you're in their heads. You know what they need. But hearing the relationships thing is really cool because that seems to be a big part of it as well. Yeah. Second question is... Armand, you took this year, maybe two years-ish, where you're like, you know what, I'm going to step away. I'm going to focus full-time on music. You're making trips out, playing in Tulum. Yeah. You're hosting these small stage concerts in New York City. How is this year going? I mean, did you have any expectations for it? Is it been what you expected it to be, or has it been completely different? I want to say I had expectations, but if I look back, no, I don't think I like properly wrote down the right expectations, but I'm super happy with it. On the artist side, the artists that I have grown with, I think we've all learned tenfolds, like how things work. And we've our quality standard of quality, our quality bar has like increased tenfold as well. All the stuff related to like the shows and stuff we we're doing, I think the pandemic threw a big wrench in everyone's life. So I think live events to me are super important because it's the best way to build a physical relationship with people yeah. who want to understand your sound or what you're doing. And so because we couldn't do that for a while, it was very rough. It was like, well, what do we do? Like, we can't just put out music because like we don't even we don't even have an audience yet. Mm -hmm. So now that we're getting back into events, I'm super excited. I'm trying to throw like music festivals, whether it's music festivals or micro music festivals or concerts, where like you're just dancing your ass off. Except, it's not for what it's worth called EDM or whatever. It's not tied to a genre. It is just sound that you haven't heard before that feels good, that makes you want to move. And one of the most important things in the journey ahead is, and it's connected to why I want to build the right audience, is I want to find all South Asian people in our generation and the generation under us, whomever, 
that I feel like have their head on straight are not out here for blood, like for each other and just being weird and super competitive and selfish in the negative way. I want to find all these people and slowly begin to put them in a room at random with each other. And I want them to grow together. And I want them, especially the creatives, I want all of these people to start coming. And this, this is the main purpose for the events. Sure, I want to provide the music aspect of it. But the real angle here is that if I can bring some of the dopest of us together for a night to just hang out, have fun, have some drinks, vibe out to good music, I know that ultimately new relationships will form and new amazing, call it products, or ideas will begin to sprout. And that's all I want. And hopefully when those ideas sprout, maybe you meet someone cool, you're like, oh, I want you on the podcast or I want to do this thing, whatever. One day you can be like, oh, how did we meet? Oh, we met at this non-resident thing. Yeah. You know, I want non-resident to be a core piece of how dope people meet in our scene. Mm -hmm. Because I'm tired of like boring people. I don't really fuck with boring people. That's fine. But I, I like people who think weird, who are just open-minded, who just want something different and are just just level-headed. And that's maybe that's asking for a lot, but I know there's a lot of us out there. I feel that 100%. I mean, just looking at the interactions on IG, but you and I were talking about like when we walked into this space, it's like a creator space. Yeah. You know, there's a photo studio, podcast studio, there's like sparks. So can only imagine in like a very energetic concert area, like what that would be like. Looking forward to that. Dude, my last question, we're kind of touching on it already but just where can people find you where can they find non-resident follow along yeah so uh this is a good question obviously instagram so at kahani music is is my instagram uh non-residence is at non-resident.fm but yeah message me message on resident the best way to keep up to date with the stuff we're doing is we have an email list and most importantly actually we have a text list an sms list and it's very important that if you are down, that you join that because people on the text list are the first people to get the invites to our stuff. And that's because clearly you trust us with your phone number. <laughs> and so you were the first people to get the invites. And uh, some of the next few events we're doing are capped at like 150, 200 people. So you want in. But hopefully one day we can be doing this stuff and bringing like a thousand dope that's people cool. together. Yeah. So yeah. maybe in Tulum or let's all go to India and, like, <laughs> and go up to the mountains or wherever and do some weird shit. Let's go. So. Don't be weird. Get weird. I feel like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's your that's motto. The motto. That's, that's the motto. That's the motto. Get weird. You know, yeah. get uncomfortable. Yeah. Get uncomfortable. Yeah. Stop. Like, just do whatever you want. Yo, speaking of which, for those of you that have been following along with Brown People, we know this is the first live episode. I booked this studio at 3 a.m. in the morning. Literally woke up. I was like... I should, just, I should just reserve a spot. Next day, I call Armand and I'm like, yo, I haven't done a live episode before. Are you willing to just come down? And like, you were in the middle of something. I was literally <laughs> like just logging off of work, but you came in. So, dude, I appreciate you doing this with me, coming in. And hey, man, it was, yeah, it was great to talk to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. How, how did I do? Because like on my way here, they say a bird shitting on you is good luck. And straight up, I mean, whoever on my Instagram story right now, I'm sitting in the car and all of a sudden just like, like, like on the side, it missed me by a hair, but like it just hit the, hit the side of the car. Like, but it came in through the window. Yeah. Um, and I was straight up just like, 
Oh, okay, this is good luck. It'll be it'll be a good good little interview. And now you you came on Brown People. We know. I don't know how you can there get luckier. Than that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We did it. We did it. Mama, I mean, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Auntie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. So, thanks. Yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.